In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, This is one of those gospel readings that we will uh, take a few steps back and then take a a running jump at. Um, So I want to start with the observation that there are a few strange traffic phenomena I've run into in my years driving around New England. One that you may have heard of is called the Boston Left. I learned recently there are actually two meanings. I thought it was a Boston left when you're stopped at a traffic light, it turns green, and you immediately turn left in front of the oncoming traffic, claiming uh, your right of way by force of gas pedal. Uh, It turns out there's another meaning of Boston left, which is when you pull all the way out into the intersection, blocking all the traffic, and then you turn after the people have come on, which, to be honest, I thought was just called driving. But there's another phenomenon that I think I've discovered, and I've coined the term the New England green. I see people looking puzzled, so I'm glad. I'll explain. A driver's ed instructor will tell you there are three states a traffic light can be in. Red means stop. Yellow means stop if safe. Green means proceed with caution. In Boston, of course, these work a little differently from the driver's ed textbook. Red means stop if safe and you're not running late. Yellow means hit the gas to make it through. And green means go and or start honking at the person in front of you to go. But in New England, there is actually a fourth state that the traffic light can be in. And that is what I call New England green. That is the moment where your traffic light is red. But the other side's traffic light is also red and has not yet turned green. And there's a few second grace period that's useful for several things. Um, You could take a right turn if there are no pedestrians or swerve around them if there are. You can complete that left turn that you pulled out into the intersection to do. Or if you feel that the person in front of you has been driving too slowly down Main Street, you just continue on for two or three cars through the red light uh, before the other one is turned to green. Now, Traffic engineers, I would suggest, are probably the third most second-guessed profession in the world, after meteorologists and football coaches. (laughs) Who among us has not sat in traffic at an intersection or a highway off-ramp and said, who designed this thing? But traffic engineers, while you may doubt that they're good at designing intersections, are very good at psychology, and they understand that no matter what they do, there will be some people who choose to take that New England green and run the red light. And so, very wisely, they have built in that few-second grace period so that at the moment when your light turns red, the light for the oncoming traffic is also red, and they have not yet started to drive. And by adding that simple few-second grace period for the New England green, traffic engineers save what must be literally thousands of lives a year. Uh, And I say all of this because, believe it or not, this is one of the two best ways to understand what Jesus is doing in this part of the Sermon of the Mount that we heard this morning. These are sometimes called the antitheses. You have heard that it was said, but I say... You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say that if you are angry, you will be liable to judgment. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say that if you even look at someone with lust, you've already committed adultery. You have heard it said, do not swear falsely. But I say to you, do not swear at all. Yet let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. 
Again and again, Jesus takes well-known and common-sense laws and makes them an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude stricter. He takes a law against murder and makes it a law against anger, against even saying, you fool. He takes a law against adultery and makes it a law against wandering eyes. He takes a law against breaking oaths that you've sworn and turns it into a law against swearing oaths at all. And he does it all in extreme, even gruesome language. This language about plucking out eyes and cutting off hands and the hell of fire. He really wants to make his point. This law that he's laying out in the Sermon on the Mount is a very strict law. This is similar to a traditional technique in the interpretation of Jewish law that the ancient sages called building a fence around the Torah. The basic principle is the same psychological insight discovered by traffic engineers. Whatever boundary you set, people will wander right up to the edge of it and sometimes cross it. And so if there's something very important at the center of it, like preventing a murder or preventing a traffic collision, you don't set the boundary right at the murder or right at the point of collision, you give that few seconds grace period. So you don't just make the law, you build a fence around the law to keep people far away from that important core. The most famous example of this principle in action in Judaism is the prohibition against mixing meat and dairy. You may be familiar with it in kosher diets. Three times the Torah repeats the cryptic command, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. And you can understand why. That's kind of a grotesque dish, a, a, a young goat or calf cooked in its own mother's milk. But God seems unusually disturbed. God repeats this law three times, and the rabbis notice, and they say, this must be incredibly important. So they built a fence around it. You can't really know the source of any given cup of milk, so it's better just not to cook a calf in milk at all. And it's hard to judge what counts as a kid or a calf as opposed to a, a young goat or a young cow, so just don't cook meat in milk at all. And if it's so important to God that meat not be cooked in milk, then surely it's splitting hairs to say that uh, some beef with a cream sauce is okay because it's on it, not cooked in it. Um, and so on. In fact, in a kosher household, you'll keep separate uh, cookware and separate plates and separate flatware for dairy and for meat to ensure that they never mix. And this sets the fence at a great distance from the law because if the boundary is, I don't use the same plate for dairy and for meat, if the boundary is I don't eat milk chocolate at the same meal I eat a hamburger, then surely you can break that law innumerable times, intentionally or unintentionally, and never get even close to boiling a kid in its mother's milk, breaking the actual biblical law. And this is very similar to what Jesus is doing. It's incredibly important that you not murder somebody, so it's better that you not be even violent toward them, and if you shouldn't be violent toward them, you shouldn't call them a fool. You shouldn't be angry to them. Jesus expands the boundaries of the law. It's like that traffic engineering. Jesus knows that you'll try to follow the law, hopefully, that you'll try to do what's right, and he knows that you'll fail. So he builds in that extra space. If you get angry with someone, okay, you violated the law of the Sermon on the Mount, but you're far away from murdering them, hopefully. The further out he pushes the boundaries of these laws, the more likely you are to break them. But the further you are from those central commandments. 
I said that that was one of the two things, though, that uh, Jesus was doing, one of the two ways to understand this. And the other one um, is a little different. It's that the strictness of this new law doesn't just build a fence around an old law. It's that to the extent that we can imagine that fence goes through us so that there are rule followers on one side and law breakers on the other side, a boundary that separates the righteous from the unrighteous, us good people from those bad people, sinners from saints, Jesus has moved the boundary so far that all of us human beings end up on the same side of it. He's broken down the division between good people and bad people, righteous people and unrighteous people. And he becomes famous for doing this. He became well-known in his own time for hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners, as they said. And the Pharisees criticized him for it all the time. And the point of him doing this is not that actually tax collectors and Pharisees are good, uh, sorry, tax collectors and sinners are good and Pharisees are bad. It's that there is no sharp dividing line between us so that some of us can say, hey, I'm good. Why are you hanging out with those people? They're bad. In the eyes of the Sermon on the Mount, we're all on the law-breaking side of things. It's just a matter of degrees within that. We've all been angry. We've all made promises we can't keep. We've all occasionally run that red light. We've all needed to forgive, and we've all needed to be forgiven. And you can tell that in a sense, what bothers Jesus more than anything else is the self-righteous self-deception of people trying to convince themselves and the world that they are perfect, when instead they could be compassionate. In other words, trying to divide themselves from other people on the basis of being better than them, when they should recognize the opportunity to forgive on the basis of the fact that they too have gone astray at times. In just a few more verses, the disciples will ask Jesus to teach them how to pray, and he'll respond with that famous prayer that contains the words, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus doesn't divide the world into sinners and saints, into two separate categories of good and bad people. He reminds us that we are all both sinners and saints, all the time, that the people of God are always both holy and imperfect. In Christ, the law becomes so strict that we cannot ever fully obey it, and God takes the opportunity to offer us grace and mercy instead of anger and vengeance and punishment. I don't need to remind you that Lent is just around the corner. Although in a few minutes, I do need to remind you that Lent is just around the corner uh, in order to invite people to the Shrove Tuesday Pancake Supper. But Lent is coming, as it always does. And our Ash Wednesday service will include, as it always does, what's called an invitation to a holy Lent. But this morning, it's not Lent yet, and I want to invite you to prepare for a compassionate Lent as well. To take a season in which to remember that you, too, are imperfect, and God expects that of you. When someone around you goes astray, to remember to that, that they are imperfect. When you yourself make a mistake, to remember that you are imperfect. Take a season to let Jesus' unbelievably strict interpretation of the law teach you that you cannot be perfect, no matter how hard you try. 
and to let Jesus' unbelievably generous grace remind you that you will always be loved and forgiven, even if and when you inevitably fail. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.